we're just entitling this grasping the grace that changes me and you know sometimes when people like me churches that preach focus and declare the grace of God which is the gospel uh, sometimes uh, you know it's like it's more theological than than experiential and you know I want to tell you that the grace of God changes a person uh, it's not some get out of jail free card it's not a license to sin that's ridiculous um, you know but we desire change and, and, and even in the physical realm we spend so much time energy strength and money trying to change ourselves and I'm not saying that's a wrong kind of thing but sometimes that bleeds over into the realm of the spirit and the weird thing about it is the way it forces us to have a dialogue with ourselves you ever talk to yourself you, you ever had a conversation with yourself when you told yourself you're not going to do that anymore and uh, you did it anyway you know what I'm saying anybody besides me ever had that problem and then, you know, what, what keeps a person uh, doing the same things over and over, even when they know the horrible effects that it brings about in their lives, and yet that person deeply desires to change. And it doesn't matter what it is. It can be something you can say with a, you know, uh, addiction of any kind. It can be a drug, substance. It can be all kind of things. And, um, but, you know, sometimes the solutions that you hear, and unfortunately, sometimes those solutions are sometimes preached from the pulpit. And a lot of times what we get is we get a dose of try harder, uh, pray more. Hey, I'm, I'm all for praying, but listen to me. Now listen carefully now because you'll misquote me on this. But prayer don't change you. Prayer puts you in a position where God can change you. But prayer in itself, just the act of praying, will bring change to a person. I know a lot of people that do what they call praying, begging, pleading, moaning, but that doesn't change them. But you know, that you say, well, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to get up you know, in the morning 30 minutes early. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to go to counseling. I'm going to take control of my life. I'm going to believe in myself. Sometimes you hear this, you know, man up. Anybody heard that? Uh, you know, uh, get a grip, whatever. All that may sound kind of motivating, but it really doesn't work because what it's doing is really asking us to be strong when the actuality is that we are very weak. And uh, I want to read a verse, uh, two verses out of 1 John chapter 5, and we'll go from there this morning. This is, this is such a powerful promise from the Word of God. It says, for whatever is born of God, and I love that it says whatever, not even a whosoever. If you just think you're not even a who, but you are what? Whatever is born of God. That means born again. Overcomes the world. Now that, that in itself is just, that's shouting material right there. God doesn't say you might be, perhaps, if you try hard. It says the qualification to be an overcomer is to be born of God. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Let me go ahead and say this. Our faith there is our faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. The next verse says, and it helps explain what he's talking about. He, who is he that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the, this, this, the whole key of overcoming anything, overcoming an addiction, overcoming any kind of long habit, overcoming anything that is trying to, to hinder your progress with God, your, your success in living out this life of grace, is, is all based on believing it's all based on believing you may have heard this by somebody else more famous than I but right believing leads to right living and that's the truth 
And when you grasp grace, you have actually got a hold of something that will absolutely change your life forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word, your house, your people. Thank you for the grace of God that empowers us to live our lives in victory. In Jesus' precious name, everybody said amen. amen. Look at the person to your left and say, you're looking good this morning. Now look to the right, the one you neglected, and tell them they're looking good too. Amen. I wanted to just talk about like grasping grace because within your grasp, within your reach, you already have the victory that overcomes the world. You believe that? And then listen to me, failure in your walk with God is not a lack of God's forgiveness. The songs that Dawn and them sung this morning, God says, I didn't see any sin. We talked last Sunday about the title was sin is a noun, grace is a verb. Man, if you missed that, not just because I preached it, but that's the word of God, you need to get that. Uh, so many people don't understand that, that Jesus Christ really did take away the sin of the world. That God really is, he was in Christ, that God was in Christ, reconciling the sin of the world unto himself, not imputing, not accrediting or accounting their sins against them. And that sin is not a barrier in God's eyes towards you. God, that's why God's not angry with anybody. Anybody that ever hints to you that God is angry today or ever gets angry with people is lying to you. God was angry in the old covenant, but things changed when Jesus went to the cross. Drastically, dramatically, radically changed when Jesus shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. Can you say amen? amen. So the lack of forgiveness is not uh, on God's part is the reason for failure. Not the lack of righteousness. When you get born again, your righteousness is received. It's not achieved. Righteousness, the Bible says in the New Testament, is a gift. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. It's not a lack of opportunities. It's not the baggage of your past. It's not even your weaknesses. It always seems to entangle you and trip you up. In fact, failure itself is not your problem. You hear me? Listen, it's the absence. I just read it to you in 1 John. It's the absence of faith. And that faith is expressed in absolute trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so it's the absence of faith that creates the vacuum that causes failure. I, I remember when I was in school uh, watching a teacher take an ordinary gas can, had a little bit of water in the bottom, it wasn't gas now, but he used a metal gas can, and, and he put a little bit of water in the bottom, but he heated that gas can up, uh, extremely hot, got it very hot, and then uh, put the lid on it and, and uh, set it off of the, of the uh, heat, the fire, the fire, and set it on his desk and continued teaching. And then in just a few moments, the, the gas can began to crumble and crush as if you had beaten it with a sledgehammer. And what, he, what, what happened there? He created a vacuum on the inside. And he was teaching us about atmospheric pressure and all that kind of thing. And, but, but a vacuum can cause a lot of damage. You, you, you hear what I'm saying? Christians, listen, let me say it to you like this. Darkness never fills a room. Light fills a room. And, and so, in the same way, failure is the absence of what is needed there to create success. In, in other words, sin in an unbeliever is the absence of righteousness. 
Now, once we get born again in our spirit, we are the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. Our righteousness is declared as a, as a gift given to us by God. It doesn't mean that we're always righteous in our behavior, but we're always righteous in Christ. Because we, we received his righteousness. It's not based on us. So doubt, then, is the absence of faith, right? And so when you take the darkness and sin and doubt, these things cannot be overcome by their counterpart. In other words, darkness cannot overtake light. Sin cannot overtake righteousness. What Adam did by thrusting us into sin is not stronger than what Christ did by removing sin on the cross. Can you say amen? If when I sin today, if that immediately makes me unrighteous, which some believers think that because they've been preached that, but if, if that makes me unrighteous, then what I'm saying is sin is stronger than the blood of Jesus. And it's not stronger than the blood of Jesus. Christians waste a lot of time and energy trying to overcome sin, trying to overcome doubt and fear and unbelief and any kind of other weaknesses of the flesh. And it seems like the more they try to drive them things out of their lives, the more they're overcome by those things. Why don't you try this as an experiment? Why don't you walk into a dark room, totally dark, and just stand there and uh, rebuke the darkness and see how that works out for you? Get a broom and try to sweep the darkness out. Stand in that room and say things like you hear Christians say, darkness, I rebuke you. Darkness, I refuse to accept you. Darkness, you don't exist. I command you to get out of this room in the name of Jesus. Get back to me on how that works out for you. Because no matter how long you do that and declare and, and bind and loose and plead, you're going to still be standing in the dark. Because darkness is not the issue. Darkness is the vacuum. The issue is light. When, you, when light comes into the room, it displaces the darkness. It literally drives it out. You know I'm not talking about light and darkness in rooms. And, but see, if you make darkness the focus, we talked about last Sunday, if your focus is to turn from sin, I put out a little tweet this past week, that, that turning, constantly turning from sin only leads to dizzy sinners. Because turning from sin don't save you. The Pharisees turned from sin all the time. But they were not saved. Because why? They wouldn't turn to Jesus. you got to turn to God in faith, in his son. That's what brings salvation. That's what delivers you from the power of darkness. It's not, you know, I told you, trying to overcome sin by focusing on sin is like trying to overcome eating sweets by staring at a piece of chocolate cake. You're going to fail. You know why most of your diets fail? Because sometimes your problem is the food, you think, and so the all diets are about food. Got cards about food, pictures about food, this about food, and you're thinking about the very thing that you're trying to do something, you know, it's, 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 you're set up for failure. You know, so you, you used to hear a lot, you know, Satan, I rebuke you. Well, isn't that in the Bible? Not after the cross. Jesus rebuked him because he ain't went to the cross yet. Jesus was talking to him. Listen, just because you see something in there, and that's a whole other sermon. But see, I was raised with this thing. This is a whole other sermon I shouldn't even probably mention. But I was raised, you know, the words in red. Now, you've got to do everything Jesus said. Really? Anybody that preaches to you that we're supposed to do everything written in red that Jesus said is lying. Because they're not doing it. Because he said in red that if your hand has ever committed sin... Cut it off. So we should be full of amputees in the church. Did he say that in red? 
He said, if your eye has ever been used to offend you, which is sin, pluck it out. We should be a bunch of pirates with amputees in here. <laughs> going error instead of amen. You know what I'm saying? Don't tell me that you do the words of red. Jesus said in red, be ye perfect. You perfect? No. You're not doing them. Jesus was preaching the law. The Bible said that Christ was born under the law to redeem those under the law. And so what we don't understand with Christ preaching is he preached the law and he actually magnified the law. They were under the assumption that they were doing okay with the law because they said they hadn't actually went to bed with anybody, so therefore they said, we're not guilty of adultery. Jesus said, you've heard that said, but I say unto you that if you've ever looked at a woman and lusted, you've committed adultery. He ramped it up. They said, well, I had never committed murder because I had never killed anybody. Jesus said, if you've ever hated anybody, you're a murderer. So you know what he was doing? He was preaching death to them. That's what the Bible says the law is, y'all. Paul said it's the ministry of death. You should have been able to say amen when I said that. Paul said the law is a ministry of death and it's a ministry of condemnation. The law doesn't save you. The law is like a mirror. You can look in the mirror and see dirt on your face, but the mirror is not going to wipe it off for you. The Bible says the law arouses sin. The apostle Paul said, I wouldn't even have known sin except for the law. The Bible, Romans 75, if you need to find out where it says, the law arouses sin. The, the, the law arouses sin. The letter killeth. Why? Because it demands the impossible. But grace empowers because it takes what was not possible by us, but through Christ and imparts that credit to our account. Amen. Come on, give him praise for that. But, you know, I see a lot of Christians, you know, and they spend a lot of time, you know, rebuking the devil, and they make the devil the big deal, you know. And listen, and I've heard it all my life, Satan, I rebuke you. I bind you. <laughs> I mean, I used to do it too. Come on. You try anything, man, when you feel like, you know, you're in a war. But according to the Word of God, Jesus defeated Satan and all, all spiritual powers of wickedness on the cross. Now, either that's true or it's not. Where is that at? Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15 says this, having disarmed principalities and powers. You understand that? That's talking about different kind of ranks in the world of darkness. But it says that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Is that true or not? Okay, now why are you spending time with a group that's trying to dethrone a principality in a certain region of the world? All the time I see where groups are going on prayer journeys, prayer walks, and they're trying to bring down. It wasn't too long ago that there was a, I won't anyway, give too much detail, but they were trying to, they were trying to dethrone the goddess Diana. Now I'm talking about of recent days, and they're trying to, through prayer and and rebuking and binding and all that. They're trying to bring down that principality. So what you're saying then is that Jesus didn't do it. And now you've got to do it. So you more Jesus than Jesus was. So Jesus left something undone, unfinished. And so now you, through your actions, have got to do something to complete the work that Jesus didn't do when he came. See how quiet it gets when you 
Because bless your hearts, we've been, we, all of us have been wore out with that. Spiritual warfare. Let's pray for an open heaven. The heavens are only closed between your ears. Because you hadn't read your Bible. There was a time the heavens were closed. Isaiah 64, the prophet cried out in verse 1, Oh Lord, open the heavens, tear the heavens, rend the heavens. It, means, it literally means to rip the heavens open and come down and save us. Did God do that? If you read about the baptism of Jesus, the Bible actually says in the original Greek that the heavens were ripped open. The Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form as a dove upon God's Son. And God the Father spoke all of it. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The heavens are open. So I don't, I, I used to, I, I waste no time praying for an open heaven. But if you think they're closed, they're close to you. Won't you read Revelation 4 1? I saw a door standing open in heaven. Who is that door? His name is Jesus and the door's wide open. It's only closed in your mind because religion has taught you that. It wants us to have busy work and keep doing stuff. Are you saying that there's no such thing as principalities and powers and devils? No, I'm not saying there's none of that. And I would say this to you. Paul talked about in Romans 6, to whatever you yield yourself to, to that thing you are a slave to it, whether righteousness unto life or sin unto death. And even as a believer, you can yield your flesh to the sin of the flesh, and it's going to bring destruction and consequences in your life. I am never saying that sin is not a big deal. I'm just saying Christ is a lot bigger deal than sin is. And the Bible says that it's a sacrifice work in Hebrews 10 that there would be now no more consciousness of sin. But we got people wanting to make sin the issue. Sin is not the issue. Christ is the issue. And if we focus on Christ, sin has been taken care of at the cross. Does it mean we never sin? I didn't say that. Sin has consequences, decision, but listen, it is not God doing it to you. The difficulty you may be facing, the trial that you may be experiencing, the bankruptcy that you may involve in, divorce that may be going on in your life or your kids, that, that's not God punishing people. It's a lie from hell. If Jesus bore the punishment of all sin, which is clear if you read the Bible, then it would be unfair, unholy, and unjust for God to punish two different people for the same sin. Either Christ bore the sin of the world, or he did not. I made the statement last Sunday, Jesus Christ did not die for your sins. Plural. It's not what he said. When John went to baptize him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin. Not sins. Why is that important? Because sin is a noun. New Testament Forty-five times, I believe I said last Sunday, in the King James Version of the Bible, the, the book of all the New Testament where sin is mentioned more than any other book is the book of Romans. And 45 of, uh, 44 of the 45 times it's mentioned. In other words, only one time is sin a verb, something that you do. Most of the church thinks sin is something they do. Sin is a force, a power, an entity. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, right or wrong? So if you're a prince, that means you're not the king, you're just the prince. Moses was the prince of Egypt, right? Are y'all going to help me? I said Moses was the prince of Egypt, but that means there was a Pharaoh on the throne. Because he's the prince of Egypt. Jesus is the Prince of Peace because God's still on the throne. But Jesus is the Prince of Peace, he's the Son of God. 
Just something to think about here. Probably shouldn't throw this out there because, anyway, but I'm already there. So Satan in the New Testament, by the, by, in one of the epistles, is called the prince of darkness. He's called the prince in the power of the air. That means there's got to be something else on the throne. Satan ain't the head deal. Sin is. If Satan was the head deal, God would have nailed Satan to the cross. But God put sin on the cross. Him who knew no sin became sin. He didn't become Satan. Man, and I feel the Holy Ghost on that. You're welcome for that revelation. It took me 20 years to get. Satan uses sin. Sin's the deal. Satan's just using that. If Satan had any kind of power of his own, he wouldn't even bother with Adam and Eve. He'd have went on and done it himself, but he didn't have any power, any authority. The world's got this idea. I grew up in a church where we had God here, Satan here. God's just barely above, and they're fighting it out. It's ridiculous. We got way too big of a devil. Well, Brother Dale, we don't have to be worried about the devil. Not really. Not if you live the way God told you to live, you don't. And that gets people mad because they like to blame something. Had a flat tire this morning. I tell you, Satan didn't want me to come to church. No, Goodyear wants you to buy a tire with some tread on it. That's why you had a flat tire. Satan ain't bothered your tire. Well, my air conditioner quit. I know Satan was just, you know, trying to make us aggravated. Satan ain't tear up your air conditioner. Thing's probably 20 years old and you ain't serviced it. That's what's wrong with it. You trying to take up for him? No, I'm just saying it's ridiculous. I'm going to put out a blog for long. It's going to get me all kind of hate mail. I'm going to go ahead and give you the title of it. Ten ways Christians worship the devil. That's going to be a good title, Steve. You know what I'm talking about? How do we worship? How do Christians worship the devil? They give him glory. They give him honor. They say the devil did this. Go on and worship him if you want to. I'm not going to worship him with you. Paul said, have no fellowship with demons. I'm not going to fellowship with demons. I'm not going to do all that. We're trying to defeat a defeated foe. Jesus defeated sin. He, he, he disarmed principalities. I'm not going to another country to try to pull down the princess Diana. Jesus pulled her down on the cross. Now, I'm not saying that principality does not exist. Where people will yield themselves to that spirit, then they can empower that thing. But it's not because Jesus left it undone. It's not because Jesus didn't do it on the cross. Am I preaching yet? Satan can only step in to a life that has stepped out of faith in the finished work of Jesus. He can tempt, but he can't overcome you. You know what Satan flees from? The presence of God. Not your rebuking words. Satan like, he don't care how loud you holler at him. Oh no, they're screaming, I got to leave. I mean, he don't care. How does darkness leave a room then? Flip on the light switch. See how easy that was? Now you can spend, Christians spend all kind of time trying to have prayer services, trying to pray the darkness out. They want to pick it, you know, and, 
and get people to stop buying Playboy magazines. So they're going to chain yourself in front of the Jiffy store and they're going to spend uh, years trying to get them to take that pornography out of there. The issue's not, not, not the magazine in there. The issue's the heart of men and women to go in there and purchase them. Apostle Ken Summerall, great man of God with the Lord now, was my spiritual grandfather, we'd say it that way. I heard him preach one of the greatest messages I've ever heard him preach one time. He said, the things I've learned, and it was after he'd been in ministry 40, 50 years or something like that. And one of the things he, he did in Pensacola, Florida, is he, he did that very thing and got involved with a group, and they picketed to get these uh, uh, pornography uh, magazines out of these certain group of stores. And they spent hours and hours and days and months and years even, and even it went to the courthouse. They even put Apostle Ken Summerall on the stand. And the, law, and the, 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 you know, the, the defending lawyer or that brought a suit against them was talking about, you know, well, you must, how can you be against something that you hadn't looked at? And boy, he really roughed him up on, you know, Brother Ken told me all this. He said he, put me, he said he put me on the stand, you know, and, and he said, well, how can you stand against something that you ain't even said? You looked at, did, have you looked at that pornography? Did you know what's in there? <laughs> Apostle Ken Summerall, he was, you know, he, he, was, uh, he said, well, I, he said, I learned as a boy you can see a whole lot through a keyhole. You know, you don't have to look at the whole, whole thing, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but he, uh, they won. And they, they were ordered, court ordered, this, this, you know, to remove all these magazines. Papa Ken Summerall told me, he said, it took us, Dale, two or three years to get that done. He said, in the meantime, while we did that, and we did get that, because you've got to be specific. You've got to say, I want those five out of there. And so they did move those five out, so to speak, be off on my numbers. But while they did that, those three years, they put ten more in. And the, and the suit couldn't touch them. And he said, I learned that that was a waste of time and energy and effort. I learned that our focus should have been on getting men's hearts changed and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and not making that the issue. But the issue was not that, the issue is Christ. And if you get men stop going in there and buying them, they'll go out of business on their own. No picketing necessary. Titus 2, verse 11 and 14. It gives us the strategy to be changed and it's really no strategy at all the only strategy that God really has is to know the grace of God Titus 2 and 11 Paul writing to Titus he says for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to how many men all men teaching us so grace is a teacher grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly righteously and godly in the present age. And it don't matter what present age you're in or whoever read this, God says, I've, my grace is sufficient in that age. Well, it's more evil now than it's never been. Not really. Only in your mind it is. It's not, not really. I don't know of any church in Valdosta where you go to it and there's prostitutes laying naked on the altars and, and men come in to worship and have sex in the public uh, worship service like they did in Corinth. That's what was going on in Corinth. I told you it was like Las Vegas spring break on steroids. But when Paul went into Corinth preaching, he never one time told them to turn from their sin. And that was a sin-filled city. But he said, I'm, he said I have persuaded myself that I'm only going to know one thing. I'm going to preach one thing to you, and that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
That's all I'm going to preach to you. He didn't make sin the issue. He didn't make darkness the issue. He made Christ the issue. And it says that, that, that see, people say, well, grace just, you know, people will sin. That's not what it says here. It says that, that, that we'll, we'll deny ungodliness, worldly lust, that we'll live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Well, that's what grace teaches you to do. And then he says this, looking for the blessed hope, glorious appearing of our great God, Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from this uh, every lawless deed, purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Sometimes people resist the grace message as an agent of change because they don't think that it has the teeth to scare people into changing. I was raised as a boy in church where people used hell as an incentive to worship God. Jesus never did that, and it's never to be used like that, and the Apostle Paul never used it like that. None of the apostles did. None of them did. Didn't even mention it, some of them. Never even breathed it. Never even used the word hell come out of their mouth. Hell was never meant to be some kind of incentive. Let me tell you something. God's good enough by himself. So all this turn or burn, eternity, smoking or non-smoking, you choose. All that stuff. One of the most dangerous things you can give a church is a billboard and a sign thing. Because what they'll do is display their stupidity and their out-of-touchness. At least when you leave here, you don't have to wonder what I thought about it. I didn't say the people were stupid. I said what they put on the sign was stupid. If you knew how that breaks God's heart, it's the love of God, it's the goodness of God that leads men to repent. Not dangling them over hell on the rotten stick. But what happens is we get a steady diet of do more. Try harder. That's the kind of sermons that a lot of people are getting this morning. We get a to-do list of Christianity, and that causes us to believe that the focus of the Christian faith is the life of the Christian, and it's not. So what do we end up? We hear, end up hearing more sermons about Christian living than we do about Christ's giving, what he did, accomplished on the cross. Let me tell you something. Do more, try harder sermons. Don't cause people to do more or try harder. You know what it calls them? To give up and quit. I want to tell you something. Legalism produces lawlessness 10 times out of 10. The only solution to immor immorality is the grace of God. It's the only solution. Only when undeserved grace, that's the only thing that can melt a hardened heart. People talk about discipleship. True discipleship is the process of paying, listen, more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less attention to our own. Man, I'm preaching better than y'all, amen. The, 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 listen, the way that many of us think about sanctification is not very sanctified. In fact, it's narcissistic. We spend too much time navel-gazing. We spend too much time focusing on, how am I doing? Am I doing it right or am I doing it wrong? And we, 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 we ponder and focus on our spiritual failures, and then we spend way too much time celebrating our spiritual successes. i tell you what I've discovered, that I've never gotten better by looking at Dale. When I make Dale the focus, in other words, when I become introspective, I actually get worse. You want to throw me into depression? Let me start focusing on me. I become neurotic, self-absorbed, 
self-centered, self-righteous. But when I focus on Christ, fixing your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus is not the author of your pain. He's not the author of the trouble that you're in today. He's the author of your faith. And he's the finisher. That good work that he began when he saved you, he's going to bring it to a completed end. God knew what he did when he, when he saved you. He's going to bring you all the way home. And all this preoccupation and with our performance, actually what it does is it hinders spiritual growth. It makes us increasingly self-centered and introspective. And, and that's not how the Bible teaches and talks about sanctification. Many Christians, I'm telling you, they, they treat the Bible like God gave us a heaven-sent self-help manual. Well, this Bible's my manual for God for living. No, it ain't. You heard that in the pulpit and you heard wrong. Listen, the fact is that unless we go to the Bible to see Jesus and his finished work on the cross, even your Bible reading, your Bible study can, all, it can, it can turn into fuel for your own self-improvement program. In other words, you'll start going to the Bible to, 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 to get a nugget so you can co conquer that day's challenges and you can take control of your life. And that's not living by the Spirit. In fact, you're not going to like this, but God, there's no place in the Bible that tells you to live by the Bible. It don't say as many as are led by the Bible are the sons of God. Are you demeaning the Bible? No. Heaven, no. What's your problem? As many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Be led by the Spirit, life by the Spirit. Is the Bible not spirit? Sure it is. The word and the spirit are the same. You can't, we're a word church. You can't be a word church without being a spirit church. And you can't be a spiritual church without the word. Trying to separate the word from the spirit is like trying to separate wet from water. Good luck with that. That's why I never cared for that campaign, you know, that was so popular years ago. You know, to ask first, what would Jesus do? I never would wear one of them bracelets myself. And I'm not saying you're stupid if you did. I'm just saying what we need to be asking instead is what has Jesus done? Buy me one of them bracelets, I'll wear that. Because that's the focus is what he has done that is the good news that sets us free. And I tell you in the church today, we desperately need to recover the truth uh, that the focus of the Bible is not the work of the redeemed, but the work of the redeemer. And his name is Jesus. It is, it, the Bible is not a recipe book of Christian living. It, it, it is a revelation book of Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of your faith. God's grace, Titus 2.11, says that salvation had to be brought to us. That tells me I couldn't save myself. It, it, salvation, uh, it brings salvation. We, we can't save ourselves. It's been brought to how many men? All men, but you still have to receive it by faith. To as many as received him, to them, he gave the exousia, authority, the right to be sons of God. You have a right to be a son of God. Come on now. I want to tell you something. Any grace preaching that is not teaching you to say no to sin is a counterfeit grace. And it is not from the Lord. 
This is the New International, the nearly inspired version. I'm going to say that one. Anyway, the NIV Bible, I love this one, though. I don't, anyway. <laughs> but I'm going to read this one. Titus 2 and 11, 12, the NIV version says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. I love verse 12. It teaches us, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. That's what grace does. That's why this is grace point. It, it ain't, well, we, we want to sin, and so, you know, none of that. None of that. If you, if you sin, and you just love the fool out of it, and it don't bother you none, you ain't born again. I'm just going to tell you, you are not born again. You might be on the roll, you might be the pastor of the church, but you ain't saved. Is grace a license to sin? Ridiculous. Only if it's fake grace. Uh, you got to be taught, though, to say no. no. People don't like to say no. It's an antisocial word. You going to eat tonight? No. But we won't say no. We'll go, we, we, we go into a long paragraph of explanation why we're not going to go eat. The fact is, I didn't want to tell you I ain't got the money to go eat, so I'm just going to say no. I remember when we were first pastoring, people say, well, you want to go out to eat with us? We're going to go to Dairy Queen. I said, no, because I didn't have the money to go. You didn't have money to go to Dairy Queen? No. <laughs> the power to say no is what grace provides, but it's really not power and I don't want to take issue with people's sermons, but a lot of times you'll hear, you know, grace is the power to say no. I, it's not the power to say no like you get a B12 shot or something. You know, like, okay, now you can say no. It's not like that. Grace actually teaches you to say no. You have to be taught to say no. You have to learn to say no. So if you're a young lady in here and you haven't learned to say no, then you've already been compromised. If you're a young man in here and you haven't learned to say no, you've probably already tried drugs. You got to learn to say no. And you have to be taught to say no, and that's what grace does. It teaches us to say no. Well, what's that talking about in the Word of God? When God says we, grace teaches us to say no, that, that's describing that our hearts on the inside will want what he wants. I'm not in a strain here. I want to say no to sin. And in other words, it's no longer that I need an outside force and a rule book or a law or ten commandments to tell me to say no. Uh, God's grace teaches us to say no from inside our hearts. This is, not, this is not my sermon today, and I don't have time to go into it. But there is a New Testament passage that said God writes the laws, plural, upon our hearts. What laws are he talking about? Some Christians think, you know, Ten Commandments, he writes it on our hearts. No, 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 it's ridiculous. It didn't work then. Why would God bring something that was obsolete, failing, in ministry of death and condemnation? Why would he write that on your heart? That's ridiculous. He, but he does in the New Testament talk about the law of liberty, the law of love. Those things are the things that he has placed upon the heart of the born-again believer. But in the old covenant, the law said no for you. You didn't, didn't matter where you said it, no or not. The law said thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. The law said no on your behalf. It wasn't you saying no. The law said no. But under grace, 
It teaches us to say no. It's not a law saying no for me. It's us saying no from inside my heart because my heart now has been changed. I have a new heart. Another sermon, another chapter in my book that I'm writing. But you, I grew up with this one. Jeremiah, the Bible says the heart's deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Save the Lord. Boy, they throw that in there and ever so many. And what they were telling me as a believer that I can't trust my heart. You ever heard that? Your heart's deceitful, desperately wicked. And they're talking to me and telling me my heart's like that post born again. So if I got born again and I got a new heart, the Bible says, and I'm a new creation, but yet my heart is still wicked and desperately wicked, untrustworthy, what good was salvation? What did it change really? It's ridiculous. And then there's other scriptures that would say, guard your heart. Because out of it flow the issues of life. Now, what am I supposed to do? Guard my heart? Trust my heart? Not trust my heart? What am I supposed to do? See, a lot of you have been taught that you have a sin nature. Even though you're born again, you still have a sin nature. You've been lied to. The Bible says once you're born again, you are now partakers of his divine nature. You're not fighting a civil war inside your body. You're not warring against yourself. But if you think you are, you're going to be really busy. But your old man was crucified with Christ. So if you still got a sin nature, what died? What was crucified? Something died. Well, why? what's the problem now? Paul said it in Romans 7, sin dwelleth in our flesh. There's no good thing in the flesh part. You still are in a flesh suit. But you've been born again. Your spirit was made perfect in righteousness and holiness. That's in Ephesians. It's not, you don't grow in holiness. You don't grow in righteousness. It's a gift. It's a gift. And so when you say no, it's got to come from your heart or you won't keep saying no. I mean, what are Christians really anyway? Are we just religious people who are not allowed to? So, well, you know, this woman says, well, how about sleeping with me? Well, I can't. I'm married. That would be a blessing to my wife. That'd be, what'd you tell her? Well, I just told her I'd like to, you know, but... She's pretty and all and everything, but, you know, the law says thou shalt not commit adultery. So, you know, I'd like to, wanted to, but I can't because I'm a Christian. Would you like to go to this strip club? No, I can't. I'm a Christian. Y'all have a good time, though. Hey, tell me about it when you get back. I want to hear about it. How about doing this sin here? How about doing this? No, I can't. I'm a Christian. You ever heard Christians talk that? I can't. That ain't no. That's I can't. The law don't teach you that I can't. The law says to take you say no. And you're saying no, not because of a law. You're saying no because of the change that grace has brought about in your life. You don't want to. I remember, you know, and I'm, I'm 57 years old now. And that's not old now, but it used to sound really old. And I remember being a young man in my 20s and and, you know, and this, this older man was talking to me one time and, you know, and it just seemed like his life to me was kind of just what I could observe over the fence was, you know, kind of boring. You know, just like to sit in the porch and rock and just do lazy stuff, you know, like I'm like live. I mean, I have never, I, you know, I, 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 you play for never and, and I, my wife is sitting there and my, I, my family, my parents, man, I, I, I never knew this nap deal. I'd never have taken a nap, nap, take a nap. That's what nighttime is for, is to sleep. 
I mean, really, I, that's what I was. Man, I was so like, I mean, it almost made me, you want to go home Sunday afternoon take a nap? <laughs> take a nap. I'll nap when I'm dead. Good God. I'm not finna nap. I'm not finna waste daylight sleeping in the middle of the day. And so used to, if you saw me asleep in the day, I was sick. I was sick. Here come them grandbabies along. Plus, I'm a little older now. So I started holding them grandbabies and rocking them grandbabies. And man, I'd be liking me some nap now in the afternoon. You know what I mean? I get it now. I see what y'all were talking about. I, I have become a believer. And sometimes I'd be talking about like, you know, Christian, is she ain't going to bring an Aiden down for his nap? Because I'm wanting to go to sleep. I'm like, my God, where's that grandbaby? Get him down here. <laughs> It's, it's three o'clock. My eyes are getting heavy. Where's he at? You know, I told him one time, I said, man, Poppy never did take a nap. Do you come along? But I'm, you know, I'm there with you now. I'll enjoy it. I'll probably give me a good one this afternoon with him. He's kind of getting to the age now that he don't want to take him as often. And I, he said, well, I don't want to take a nap. I'm like, please come on. Nathan, let's take a nap. But you look like you need a nap, son. I'm telling you. But that old man on the porch, he said, son, what you're going to find out when you get older is your want-tos are going to change. And a lot of things you want to do right now, you're not going to want to do when you're my age. And you'll be just as happy as you can be because your want-tos have changed. Well, when you get born again, what grace does is changes your want-tos. I don't want to do that sin with you no more. I don't want to go to those places. I don't want to do those things. I'm not referencing a law telling me to say no to you. Imagine this, a bride, beautiful bride in a wedding dress. She's dressed and she's at the church and all her family's there and, and we're just waiting, you know, for the wedding time to, to, to commence. And her little brothers are outside on the church uh, lawn and they're playing football and they come into their, one little brothers comes to his sister who is the bride dressed in her wedding garment and he, and he says, sis, come on, we got a football game going out here. You know, come out and play football with us. She's not going to say, I can't. I really like to, I want to, but I can't. I got to get married. She's just going to say no. No, I don't want to. You kidding? I'm dressed for my husband. The wedding's supposed to come. I'm about to be married. I'm out to enter into a covenant. No, I'm not going to go play football with you. No, I'm not going to go hang out at the strip club with you. No, I'm not going to do this sin with you. No, I'm not going to do that. Are you kidding? I've got on the garment of righteousness. It was given as a gift. I'm waiting on my husband, looking for that glorious appearing of my Savior, Jesus Christ. No, I'm not going to do that with you. And I'm not telling you no because some Ten Commandments. I'm telling you no because it's my heart telling you no. I actually love him. I want what he wants. He's changed me. Grace has changed me. I remember... Man, we talk about forgiveness a lot right here. Don't even sung about it today, and I see no sin. I love all that, and I'm going to keep preaching it and talking about it. Forgiveness is so awesome. I, I, I wish I'd have known this 20 or 30 years ago. I, spent, I wasted so much other good prayer time begging God every day to forgive me my sins, not realizing that he'd already forgiven the world of all sin. Well, don't you sin now? Yeah. Did you ever tell him you're sorry? Not to be forgiven, I don't, but I do tell him I'm sorry I did that. Just like I would tell my wife, I'm sorry, baby, I talked to you like that. Like even last night, I forgot something. She said, she said well, you're, 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 you yelled at me. 
don't know what it was. What was it? Anyway, you said I, you said I was yelling. And uh, I said, uh, and I went right, right back in there, you know, and I said, listen, I didn't mean to yell, raise my voice. I just didn't want this to happen. I remember now. I just didn't want this to happen. And uh, so I said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to yell at you. I didn't mean to raise my voice, you know. Like that. But I thought there was something, you know, that anyway. And so, yeah, I tell her that, but she was like, she's not like, well, I'm going to divorce you if you didn't say me I'm sorry. We're in a covenant to death to us part. So when a woman tells me, and, and when she, 37 years ago, 36 years ago, when we got married, 37 this July, but when she tells me that I'm going to never leave you, I'm going to stay with you for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Watch that woman is telling that man, in case you don't know that and you're about to get married, is you're saying that that man's going to sin against me a bunch. And I'm already in advance forgiving him of all his future sins against me. Therefore, I'm going to say I'm never going to leave you. That's the way it is with Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to save you. The difference between that and Jesus is he's done seen all you're going to do. And forgave you anyway. Amen. But let me, let me just end with this. I remember Jim Baker, PTL. And, and, and I have no stones to throw at him. Let's use this example because it's such a public thing. And I remember when all that happened. I remember, uh, and I had never been involved. I remember Rick Joyner and some of the uh, Morningstar ministry, I believe it was called. They had one of their first big conferences, their own PTL property there in Charlotte, out from Charlotte. Jill and I remember the first time I drove on that property. Of course, there was a big skyscraper there, and pigeons were flying in and out of the windows. The, the, the construction come to a screeching halt when all that went down. And I, but I was amazed as I drove across that property, acres and acres and acres and buildings and motels and restaurants and all this stuff. For, you know, I thought, how can a man have that kind of vision? I, mean, I, just didn't, I couldn't even, it was beyond my comprehension. And, um, of course, he, he went to prison. Well, a lot of people don't know that he was in prison right over here in Jessup, Georgia. It's where they sent him to prison, Wayne County. Did you know that? That's where he went to prison. And so there he is in prison. And one day, and, and, and where did I get this from? He wrote a book, and I believe the title of the book was I Was Wrong. I know that's the title of the book, I Was Wrong. It was Jim Baker's book that he wrote when he got out of prison. I was actually at a Morningstar conference when he got out of prison, didn't even know he got out, and he came and spoke. Unfortunately, Jill and I actually missed that session, but he spoke as a surprise speaker, fresh out of prison. Because Rick and him were having a conference, and as soon as they released him, Rick had him to come straight back up, to, and, he walked, and he drove back on that property that he no longer owned. And he stood that night, which I got the, I got the CD of it, you can believe that. And he stood that night, and for almost two hours, basically verbally spoke that book, I Was Wrong. One day he said in his book he was cleaning the toilets in Wayne County over here in Pierce at the Jessup, Jessup prison, Jessup, and uh, federal prison. And he was there, and uh, he had on his, uh, he said his jumpsuit, his gloves, and he was cleaning toilets in the prison. And cleaning the toilets, he said he splashed toilet water and stuff all over his jumpsuit. <clears throat> and a guard came to him and said, uh, Jim, you got a visitor at the visitor center you need to go see a visitor he said i want to see anybody he said well you need to go there's a visitor up there waiting on he said i told you i don't want to see anybody i don't want to talk to anybody i don't want to look at anyone he said man listen to me trust me you're going to want to see who this is and so he based on that 
what the guard said. He took his gloves off and he said, well, I, I'm not changing. I'm not doing anything. I don't care who it is. I'm just going just like this. And he had just water all over that jumpsuit. And he walked into the visiting center and there sat, uh, sat Billy Graham and his wife. Billy Graham got up when he saw Jim Baker walk into the room. And Jim, he, Billy Graham walked over to Jim Baker. Jim Baker says this in his book. And he put his arms around him. And he hugged him, he said, so tightly. Ever so tightly. Just held. And, and Jim Baker says this. He said, I could not control my sobbing. And I, I thought about that picture. He didn't say this in his book. But this is, my, this is what I'm saying about that imagery that it put in my mind. At that time, Jim Baker was the most despised, hated preacher in this country, if not the world. And he was being embraced and hugged by the most respected and honored preacher in the world. Jim said that's the day that forgiveness was experienced in his life. I remember as a 19-year-old teenager coming to an altar... And coming back to the Lord, not really understanding all that was going on. But I remember the feeling that left me of guilt, condemnation, and shame when I received the benefit of that forgiveness that was granted at the cross when Jesus shed his blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And when Jesus shed his blood, he forgave the world of all their sin. And that's why God's not angry with anybody today. And God said, the message I've given my church is the ministry of reconciliation. Because it was God. God said it was me that was in Christ. And I reconciled the world to myself. And now I've given you that message and that ministry to go and tell the world this. Be ye reconciled to God. In other words, what he's saying is, come to God. Because he's not angry with you. He's not upset with you. He doesn't even see your sin as a barrier any longer because he doesn't see your sin at all because he's removed it. He didn't cover it. He removed it as far as the east is from the west. So sin is not your problem. Well, what's my problem? You're dead. And you're dead to the things of God. God said the day they ate of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, they'd be, they, they would die. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life. Our problem was not that we needed forgiveness because we'd done something bad. Our problem was that we needed life. Because we were dead to the things of God. But the Bible says that when you're born again, you're dead to sin. And now you've been made alive unto God. Now the things of God matter to you. Now the things of God are important to you. Now the things of God are in your heart. He's wrote those things. and He's given you the royal law of liberty and the law of love. And now is, is, it, it, the law said, you know, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength and mind. And then it says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That was the law. That's Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Because the guy said, what is the greatest commandment in the law? But Jesus, after the cross, through his apostles, said, now I'll give you a new commandment. This is going to be a new commandment. He said, you ain't never heard this one before. He said, love others as I, Christ, have loved you. See, it's one thing to love somebody like you love yourself. It's a whole other thing to love somebody now like Christ loved you. That's what the new commandment is. That's the law of love. That's what God has put on your hearts. Because the foundation of this kingdom is a kingdom of love. And most everybody will agree with me in the churches today. They say, well, God has unconditional love. And they'll go, yes, absolutely. He has unconditional love. Can I say to you, you cannot have unconditional love unless you have unconditional forgiveness. 
It is impossible. And the very fact that you would admit or say that God is God that loves everybody, saint or sinner, unconditionally, you agree with that? Yes. Then what you just said is God has forgiven everybody, saint or sinner, because you cannot have unconditional love and yet still hold their sins against them. God is a God that loves unconditionally because God is a God that has forgiven conditionally by the blood of his son Jesus. And he forgave the world of sin. And he's reconciled the world to himself and said, I'm not mad. Just what Dawn's saying, come home. Come home. I'm not mad. Sin's not your issue. Don't try to get your life under control or clean up for you. Just come. Remember the old hymn, just as I am, about one plea. Just come home to Papa. Would you stand with me and bow your head? Ministry team, would you come? We're going to give you an opportunity as we do here at Grace Point every Sunday to receive prayer and ministry. If you want to just come up and say, hey, preacher, shake my hand. Or if you want to come up and receive prayer, it doesn't matter what the reason is. And if nobody comes, then we're going to go eat chicken quicker. We love you. We want God to be realized as a God of grace, a God of forgiveness, a God of mercy, because that's who he is. It's the goodness of God that causes people to repent and change their mind about what they thought about him. Do you receive that today? Oh, what an image I saw when Billy Graham was holding Jim Baker. I had never saw that until I saw him in his book. But you know who that really is? The Bible is not a book about those good people that made it up to heaven. It's a book about God come down and delivered all of us out of the miry clay and out of the pit and set us on the rock, which is his son, Jesus. Amen. If you want prayer for any reason, I'm going to dismiss the church. And while they go that way, you come this way and we'll meet you down here for prayer. God bless you, church. We love you.